This morning, I'm going to share with you out of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, starting in John 15. Uh, John refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not to try to say that he was the only disciple whom Jesus loved, but to demonstrate the closeness and the uniqueness of the relationship that they had. The Apostle John is the only one of the original 12 who was not martyred for their faith. It's not because the Romans didn't try to kill him, it's because he refused to die. In fact, prior to being abandoned on the island of Patmos, the Roman rulers summoned John to the Colosseum and attempted to boil him in a vat of oil. He refused to burn. He preached the gospel and church historians record that on that day, 50,000 were saved. The Apostle John writes the book of John, and he also writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. These become apostolic letters to the churches in Asia Minor after John gets off the island of Patmos. And the reason why there are four Gospels is because it gives us four different and unique perspectives all on the same events. The Gospel of John is written in such a way that it illustrates the seven major miracles of Christ and also the seven great I am statements of Christ. And we're going to look at one of those seven great I am statements to see the things that Jesus self-declared to be true about his kingship. Starting in verse 1 of John 15, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, makes this self-evidentiary claim. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, watch, so that it will be even more fruitful. Let me stop there for a moment and just make this observation, friend. There are a lot of vines in the world. There's a lot of trees in the forest, a lot of worldviews, opinions, avenues, constructs, political parties, and religions. But there is only one true vine from which all sustenance flows, and his name is Jesus. He is not just one of many truths. He is the one who defines all that is true. He is not just one of many ways. In fact, he is the only way. He is not just the alpha. He is also the omega. He is not just the beginning. He is also the end. And friend, he is everything in between. And we should not be ashamed to declare today that there is no salvation outside the name of Jesus Christ. See, our culture loves the heretical idea that we each have our own truth. And friend, I'm here to tell you this morning, you in fact do not have your own truth. You may have a perspective, you may have an opinion, you might even have a compelling story, but the claim to what is ultimately true does not belong to us, it belongs to him. See, we live in a world where the most offensive thing you can do is not validate somebody's opinion or identity. But see, I can't afford to reinforce a lie in order to gain the approval of culture. Friend, the truth will always sound like hate to people who hate the truth. You know, sometimes folks in the media, they'll ask, well, what is your opinion on sexuality? And what is your opinion on, on marriage? And what is your opinion on, on these particular issues? Listen, our opinions don't matter because our lives are not founded on the opinions of man, but instead we have willingly submitted ourselves to the truth of the gospel. There is only one source of life. There is only one source of hope, joy, wholeness, security, and grace, and it is found in the reality of a resurrected savior 
And watch, when you try to get authentic wine from fake vines, it only leaves you disappointed and dried up. A number of months ago, I was attending a private fundraiser at somebody's house here in the region, and it was for a specific cause and organization that they were a part of, and they had it catered, and it was a nice buffet meal, and we were all sitting in the living room, and somebody opened in prayer, and we all got our plates, and we're getting ready to line up to go around the table to pick the food that we wanted. And as I was getting close to the buffet table, I saw this incredibly delicious-looking bowl of fruit. And I thought to myself, well, it won't harm me to be healthy on this day. I'm going to fill up with all the other stuff, but before I return to my seat, I'm going to make sure to grab a piece of that fruit. And lo and behold, as I went to grab that piece of the fruit, it, it looked good from afar. It had the appearance of virtue and taste. It was appealing to the eye. But once I touched it, something just didn't feel right. It was fake. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're already halfway through a mistake, you look worse to back out. So I committed. <laughs> I took that ripe red apple. I put it right on my plate. I went back to my seat and I sat down and I thought of all of the creative ways I was going to try to get out of this secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> Watch, some of you have been looking for living water from dried up wells, new wine from cut off branches, fresh bread from broken ovens. Friends, the fake won't ever produce the real. It is time to find yourself connected to the true vine. Oh, you can try just about every other thing, but I've found there to be only one fount that never runs dry, one source that sustains my life, only one God who has the power to make dead things live again. No, Jesus isn't one of many vines. He is the true vine, and his father is the gardener. Now watch. God will allow you to taste the fake in order to stoke your appetite for the real. No, this isn't church as normal. We are not in the business of entertaining people. We are not in the business of pleasing the region. I am not trying to reduce the gospel to the level of the culture. I am trying to raise the culture to the level of the gospel. Now watch. The woman at the well had to taste the failure of five marriages until she could meet the man who told her everything that she had ever done. Saul of Tarsus had to taste the death of man-made religion until he met the one on the road who blinded his eyes in order to illuminate his heart. The Philippian jailer had to taste the dissatisfaction of authoritarian power until he met an angel who opened every prison door. Friend, it's the wilderness that makes you appreciate the promise and once you find living, living water never ever go back to dead vines the bible says this he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit see the verb translated cut off in the greek has two meanings number one it means to remove the destructive branch but number two it means to bind up the broken branch 
Do you know that God in his grace cuts off destructive branches in your life? When something becomes destructive, counterproductive to your growth, counterintuitive to your development, the gardener will remove it for the purpose of you being even more fruitful. Watch what Paul says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares. Do not get entangled with earthly affairs. There are some branches that you may have needed in past seasons that actually become prohibitive to your growth in a current season. There are some relationships. There are some activities. There are some mindsets. There are some patterns that only prohibit the new growth God's trying to develop in your life. You know, development happens when you trust that the gardener knows not only what to prune, but how to prune. And any temporary pain that you might feel will pay dividends if you allow the old to go so the new can come. Hear me, friend, the purpose of pruning is not punishment, it's fruitfulness. Not only does the gardener cut off destructive branches, but the Bible says that he binds up distressed branches. The idea is that the father lifts up unproductive vines off of the ground. As was common in the ancient practice of vineyard care, those caring for ancient grapevines made sure to lift them up off the ground that they might get more sun and bear fruit better. Oftentimes a less productive branch would be tied to a healthier branch so both could receive sunlight together. Meaning this, yes, there's a mandate on your life to produce fruit, but if you find yourself in a distressed season, do not lose heart, for he is close to the broken and the contrite, and a bruised reed he will not break. I don't know a better analogy for why it's important that you find yourself in church, because sometimes you're gonna operate as the strong branch that somebody else can tie their life to. But sometimes you're gonna be the distressed branch and God's gonna sit you next to somebody who will lend you their courage and their strength so you can stand up tall and receive the sunlight and the ingredients you need for the next stage of your development. Fred, he is the vine, his father is the gardener, and the church is the vineyard. And we have been bound together for such a time as this. Watch what Jesus says. In verse 4, he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. For no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. See, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. For I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you know that this word remain appears 11 times in the span of six verses? It's almost as if the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention so that we notice the pattern. Do you know that if you stay here long enough, eventually I will say something you disagree with. Eventually you will meet somebody who irritates you. Eventually you will be disappointed in an outcome. And if you're really lucky, all three might happen on the same Sunday. 
But see, it's what you decide to do in those moments that defines the maturity of your spiritual walk. That word remain means to stay, to wait, to abide, to endure, to stand, to continue, or to persevere. The Apostle John uses this word again when he writes the churches in Asia Minor. In 1 John 2 and 19, he says, they went out from us, but they never really belonged to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now watch, if God intended for them to be part of your story, they would have remained. So it is high time to let the dead bury their own and for you to follow him. Friend, where else are we gonna go? Only he has the words of life. Oh, I know church hurt is real, but friend, in a world flooded with crap, the church is the best thing afloat. Listen, all of hell wages war against your ability to remain. Hell wants your faith to be short-lived. Hell wants your passion to be temporary. Hell wants your marriage to collapse. Hell wants your faith to deconstruct. Hell wants your hope to fail, but victory belongs to those who remain. Hear me. I am asking you to remain because you don't realize the amount of transformation happening in your life. I am asking you to remain because you don't understand the significance of raising your kids in church. I am asking you to remain because it's when you feel like God is most absent that in fact God is most at work and you cannot afford to miss this moment. See, the world is waiting for the church to run. Run to an easier city. Run to a sunnier location. Run to a less complicated region. But I'm not leaving until we make the devil pay for everything he has stolen from the Northwest. Friend, we are gonna remain. I want you to see something. It's buried here in the text. The key to bearing fruit is not your talent. It is not your anointing, your skill set, your character, or your spiritual gift test. The key to bearing fruit is found in your ability to remain. If you will remain, fruit will be the natural byproduct of your life. Hear me. When you don't feel like worshiping, that is when your worship is most important. When you don't feel like praying, that is when your prayers are most powerful. When you don't feel like remaining, that is when your stubborn refusal to give up pays the most dividends. Watch what Jesus says. He says, if you remain in me, watch, and my words remain in you. See, we live in a generation that loves the idea of Jesus but hates the words of Jesus. But friend, you don't get one without the other. No, we are not just hearers of the word, we are doers of the word. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Sometimes in this church, people will say, well, Russ, why don't you tell more stories? And we need more antidotes. And when are we gonna get more jokes? Friend, I got about 60 minutes with you every Sunday morning. And I am convinced if I can just give you the word, God is gonna do the rest. I want you to leave this place after this service so filled up on the word that you dare yourself to believe that what Jesus says is true. I want you to overdose on the word of God to such a degree that your life is never shaken by the words of man. And when the enemy comes after you, you can rise up and say, it is written. Friend, we need the word. Watch what Jesus says in verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Do you know that nearly every fruit today carries seeds? 
Meaning that what you produce by virtue of remaining in Christ carries the potential to inspire fruit in the life of someone else. There is nothing more powerful than a testimony of a person who has remained faithful when life got difficult. How will I show myself to be a disciple when other people quit, I remained? In the last 12 months in this church has been filled with some of our best days and the hardest days that we have ever had. But God is building in me the tenacity to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking because there is a door that is getting ready to open. We have no other choice but to cling to the hope that we have found in the person of Jesus Christ. What else are you going to do? Put your faith in political outcomes. Put your faith in the stock market. Put your faith in our economic volatility. Where else are we going to go? We have found a well that gives us living water, and he has invited us to come and drink. There is nothing that satisfies like Jesus. There is nothing that can repair the injured human heart like Jesus. There is no one who can remove your sin as far as the east is from the west like Jesus. When culture tried to cancel you, God adopted you. When the enemy tried to take you out, God set you up on a high rock. There is no other way outside the way which is found in Jesus Christ. Now watch, our church is like fudge, sweet with a few nuts. But see, I'm going to remain because we're living stones that have a part to play in what God is doing next. Watch what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. See, it seems like Jesus is saying some pretty obvious stuff. But there is one thing God knows to be true about us, and it's this. It is easy to say we love each other. It's a lot harder to actually practice it. See, love requires the laying down of your preference for the sake of someone else. Love requires the disruption of your schedule to serve someone else. Love requires a heart that is willing to forgive, a life that is willing to share, a house that is willing to be open. You know, we want this church to be a place where folks are truly known and deeply loved, and that doesn't happen over Zoom. It doesn't happen once every other month. Instead, it is the result of a daily commitment to do life with people who look different than you because at the end of the day, we are worshiping the same Jesus. You know, sometimes people after a service, they'll go, well, you know, Pastor, I don't think I really liked worship today. That's okay, we weren't worshiping you. It's okay. See, love requires the laying down of your preference because you get to see another generation interact with the presence of God. That's what I love about this church. It's emblematic of what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, young and old, maidservant and menservant, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Man, this church is blessed by people of every generation who are gathering around the centrality of the presence of God. 
I know it's a little loud and I know it's a little rowdy, but I'll tell you what, every week I meet grandparents who are just excited to see their grandkids jumping at the altar. Every week I see moms and dads who are just excited that a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter came back home and found the love of Jesus. Every week I meet folks who say, I would have never guessed or believed I would ever see that guy or gal in church, but it's worth it to show up to see their lives changed by the power and presence of Jesus. Friend, love requires that we lay down our preference at his feet. Now watch, watch. Sometimes I hear people critique the church. They'll say things like this, well, pastor, there really isn't any community here. Watch. Friend, community is your responsibility, not the church's. That would be like standing in front of a buffet and complaining that there is no food. The truth of the matter is, we have made it somebody else's responsibility to force feed us when we should have learned the art of feeding ourselves. See, community is like an investment account. I only get out what I first put in. See, the fellowship of the saints isn't just a good idea, it was the building block of the first century church. No, I don't gotta be everybody's friend. No, I don't got to fit everyone in my circle, but if everywhere I go, the community stinks, maybe the problem is you. You know, some folks show up at church just looking for things that are wrong so that they can feel good about having an excuse to not show up. Yeah, I, I, but if Jesus can take Jews and Gentiles tax collectors and zealots, fishermen and carpenters, and sit them at the same table, then we ought to figure out a way to love like he did. Come on, friend, watch how Jesus ends this discourse. He says, greater love has none other than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. That word friend in the Greek, means dearly loved prize, trusted confidant. You are my friends. I am amazed and perplexed that this Jesus would choose these 12 men and have them follow him for three and a half years. He has seen every good moment, every bad moment. They argue, they don't understand him, they leave him, they betray him, they question him. And yet at the end of his ministry, he stares them in the eyes and says, you are my friends. And in fact, in the next verse, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but instead I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from the Father I have made known to you. I would dare say today that you can't afford to call yourself something that God hasn't said. Hear me, imagine if I as a parent were walking by my child's room and I heard them saying things like this, oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, I'll never get it right. I always make the same mistakes. I won't ever measure up. What do you think that would do to my heart as a father? Oh friend, you ought to be careful what you call yourself because you're listening. No, you won't always get it right. But if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, he calls you friend. Come on, let me in here because this is good. 
in Matthew 26, Matthew, the tax collector, records the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. While he was still speaking, Judas suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him. His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So Judas went right up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus responded, friend, why have you come? Judas had been embezzling money from Jesus' ministry account for quite a while. Judas then sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which actually was the going rate of a common slave in the Old Testament. The one that Jesus loves, the one that Jesus washes his feet, the one that Jesus will lay his life down for, now betrays him with a kiss. And I am so struck by the way that Jesus addresses him, friend, in the midst of Judas's betrayal, watch, Jesus calls him friend, which tells me this, in the midst of your addiction, Jesus calls you friend. In the midst of your struggle, Jesus calls you friend. In the midst of your depression and your loneliness, Jesus has called you his friend. In the midst of your backsliding and your backstabbing, Jesus has called you friend. And it is this revelation of friendship that truly changes everything about us. I am not just working for him. I am not just trying to earn his approval. He is not permanently upset at me. He is not looking to punish me for my last mistake. No, he looks at me through the blood of Jesus as his his own righteousness. He has seated me in heavenly places and he has said, Russell, you're not just a servant. I have called you my friend. And I want you to know today that the God of the universe with his eyes that burn like fire stare into human hearts even this morning and he wants you to know that he thinks of you as his friend. See, here's the scary part of Revelation. Once you receive it, you become responsible for it. And I'm asking you this morning, what are you gonna do with the revelation of God's friendship in your life? Come on, it is what separated Abraham and Moses apart in the old covenant. God spoke to them as a man speaks to his friends. And how much more in the new covenant because of the filter of the blood of Jesus and his very spirit that takes residence inside of us does God take us by the hand in the midst of all of our disqualifying actions and say, you have always been my friend. Man, when you view yourself as a friend of God, all of a sudden you get a little courage and boldness in your life. All of a sudden, you're able to step out of the shame of yesteryear because God doesn't call me by my mistakes. He calls me by my name. All of a sudden, you begin to operate a little differently. The joy of your salvation returns to your heart. There's a pep in your step. You've got a little courage in your life, not because everything is awesome, but because of the God of the universe knows me by name. He has numbered the hairs on my head and the days of my life. And at the end of my earthly existence, he will stare me in the face and say, Russell, you have always been my friends. There is no other world religion that even comes close to that Christological claim. 
There's a lot of ways that you got to work and earn and grind and try to prove yourself, but only in a gospel as good as the one we read this morning do we understand that he has called us his friends. See, we are co-laborers and co-heirs. I am not a human doing, I am a human being created in his image, enjoying the friendship of a father who has made me his son. No, you're, you're a friend of God. Don't allow the enemy to steal an identity from you, to get you so trapped up in the review mirror of your last mistake that somehow you would be moved away from the revelation of identity as a friend. See, here's why I don't have to pray, God, if it is your will, please heal this person. God, if you're really interested in the Northwest, please send revival. God, if you're in a good mood, please help me out in this situation. No, I get to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. Why? Because friends know the master's business. I know what the master wants to do. He's looking for partners in the earth and we're gonna be a church who are friends of God who bring his kingdom to the Northwest. Come on, would you stand as we close? Let me pray for you and encourage you in the Lord. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts, that you would remove all the layers of religion that have turned you into an angry, cold, and callous, distant God. You are not. You are close to the broken. You're the one who gets in the mud of life to lift us out of the miry clay. You are the incarnate God, the one who became like us to save us from us. You are the one who was made manifest to dismantle the works of darkness. You have never met a sickness so sick that you can't heal it. You have never met a sinner so sinful that you can't redeem them. You have never met a situation so impossible that you can't turn it around. And God, today, it is our great joy to recognize that you have called us your friends and invited us to participate in the master's business. God, I pray that you would help us, that you would rewire the narrative that we repeat in our own minds, that you would rewire the thoughts that we think as it pertains to you and as it pertains to us. May we have the mind of Christ so we could think like you, speak like you, act in accordance with your will and see your power on full display. And God, we're gonna give you all the praise, glory, and honor, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said amen. Friend, if you're here today and you need a miracle in your life, you came to the right place. We have altar team members ready to add their faith to yours to see God do something supernatural in your life today. If that's you, I'm gonna invite you out of your seat. Come on, let's join our faith together and pray at these altars. Let's see God do his best work in us. If not, God bless. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for service. We're gonna be back next week, all five services. Why don't you invite a friend? Let's help build the house of God together. We'll see you real soon. God bless.